This is this is Dennis Romani. I'm here with my co-host Phil Goldberg. Our podcast and YouTube channel now, uh, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. We discuss anything and everything under the umbrella of contemporary spirituality. Uh, I want to begin by thanking those out there that have uh, helped to keep Phil and I on the air, uh, uh, Phil and me on the air, uh, by uh, contributing. We're not a nonprofit, but if you go to our website, spiritmatterstalk.com, it uh, lets you know how you can help us um, keep a free and open archive and uh, keep the show going. Uh, our guest today, Franz Metcalf, uh, he is a uh, graduate of the Theological Union. He also has a doctorate from the University of Chicago. Uh, he is uh, an expert, or we certainly consider him an expert in Buddhism, in American Buddhism and contemporary Buddhism. And uh, he's written five books and uh, his books have been translated into multiple languages. And uh, it's uh, 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 an honor, a thrill for us to have him on the show today. Many questions about what's going on in uh, contemporary Buddhism. Uh, uh, certainly something Phil knows a good deal about, something I'm learning about, and we have the expert on. So thank you so very much, Fred, for taking the time to come on with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. And, 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 I, and I appreciate, you know, the, the nerdy scholar in me really appreciates you self-correcting your keeping Phil and I on the air to keeping Phil and me on the air. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You'd have heard from me if you hadn't. Well, it's like, how can I, how can I possibly still make that mistake? But anyway. Uh, Ron, good to see you. Welcome aboard. Um, let's begin, as we usually do, with um, filling in our listeners and viewers uh, with your uh, background, how you came uh, to the study of Buddhism, your own spiritual uh, path, in, in relation to uh, being both a, a scholar and uh, a practitioner, although not in equal measure. Uh, and uh, we'd love to hear, you know, a short version of how you came to the work you've done. Um, sure, I, I, this is a really good question, not just, you know, to ask of a person on your show, but for me to hear, because I'm still constantly wrestling with this question, you know, you know, who, who am I and what hat am I wearing and so on. And I think it's good for me to, to, to have to answer it, because every time I do, I think it helps me understand myself maybe a little bit better. Um, I, I, I always thought Buddhism was cool. I grew up in San Francisco, you know, which uh, it's a very Pacific Rim city. There's there's definitely Buddhist influences that, that I experienced, you know, as a young child and in, in high school and so on, and and in college at Berkeley. So I thought Buddhism was cool, and uh, and then I was an actor in 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 high school and college, and for a few years afterwards, uh, until I just realized you have to be you have to be either really talented, or really lucky, or really good looking. You gotta have at least two of those, and I, I didn't really, <laughs> didn't really. I don't know which ones I was most lacking in, but I just definitely decided I did not have two of those. But I had been interested in reading books on Buddhism and so on, so I traveled around Asia for a year, in nine months, uh, when I was 24 or 25, and I really began to try to. I, I, I kind of tried to identify as a Buddhist while I was there, uh, and I realized I. I certainly wasn't an Asian Buddhist. 
Um, and I, so I thought I came back when I came back to America, I thought I'm gonna go to grad school because you know, I wanna learn about this and see what it really is my relationship with Buddhism. And I realized then in all those years of graduate school that I was fascinated by Buddhism, particularly Zen Buddhism. Uh, but I wasn't really a joiner. So uh, I kind of forced myself to join Zen Center of LA um, by doing a dissertation project that made me join and be a, 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 be a scholar practitioner, be a participant observant um, in terms of ethno ethnographic terms, because it was a field project. Uh, so, but I guess I've always felt a little more comfortable in an academic environment than in a Buddhist institution. So I continue to practice Buddhism, meditation and so on. And I weave various aspects of it into my self-understanding and so on, because I had this very broad, um, education in Buddhism, Buddhist history, Buddhist practices, Buddhist cultures in graduate school. And then so I've woven that into my practice and also into the books I've written. Um, I've always felt that, that um, sense that, you know, who am I to write these books? They're books applying Buddhism to everyday life. Like there are so many more advanced practitioners and teachers, but on the other hand, nobody else seemed to want to do it. And also, my background in all sorts of forms of Buddhism is kind of broad uh, uh, introduction to and study of different forms of Buddhism allowed me to bring different practices and ideas into the books to share with people in a way that a really advanced high level teacher in one particular tradition couldn't have done. So mm -hmm. I felt like, well, you know, <laughs> I have something to offer as it turns out after all. <laughs> so, so I still wear, I, I still, wear all those different hats and I still try to integrate those things into my, uh, into my ongoing life, even at my I'm curious, age. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious, do you identify, do you consider yourself a Buddhist? Uh, and, and also, um, back it up, what, what, what makes one a Buddhist? Or uh, if, one, if you have a student you've taught for many years and, and, and on the university level, and if you have a student said, I'm, I'm really fascinated with studying Buddhism, I'd like to become a Buddhist, for Christianity, okay, you, you get baptized. This is what you do. For other religions, there may or may not be a ceremony which makes you a a, a member. Uh, how does it work with uh, Buddhism, and is it different in Zen Buddhism than in other forms of uh, Buddhism? Well, of course, the details of of kind of the ritual practice of, of of becoming part of the community are different in the different traditions. But I I would say though, just generally. Uh, in Buddhism, it is very much like it is in Christianity or in, in Islam or in Judaism or in Hinduism. You, when you become, when you really want to identify as that religion, most people want to do so through a ritual that puts them into a community of practitioners. And, and that's why I would say some very legitimate and maybe very wise Buddhists would say that I'm not a Buddhist because I am not a member of a community in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and really, and remember the three, the three jewels of Buddhism, right? Are the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. So the Buddha, the person who brings us the tradition or the idea of awakening, the Dharma, the teachings of, of the tradition, their beliefs and so on. And then the Sangha, the community. So if, if, you, if you say you're a Buddhist like me, <clears throat> I say I'm a Buddhist, but I have the Buddha and the, and the Dharma but do I really have the Sangha? And if, if, if not, 
then am I a Buddhist? And and if so, what is my sangha? And that's something that I I mm-hmm. I work on. I struggle with. And there's also, Franz, the um, I don't know if if this term is used uh, when applied to Buddhism in America, but it is to Hinduism in America. So it probably is the the, the distinction between the inheritors and the adopters. And so here in America, we think of Buddhism, you know, we think of the the beats and Zen, and we think of the contemporary mindfulness teachers and the Vipassana teachers um, as American Buddhists. Uh, But there are a whole lot of Asian Americans who practice Mm -hmm. Buddhism that's more like what is practiced in Asia. So uh, as, a, as both a scholar and a, uh, an observer, uh, you know, in real life, um, how do those distinctions play out? And how are you um, greeted in your capacity by each? Yep, we lost Phil for a second there, but, but oh. I, think, I think I got the gist of the question. Um, well, you know, actually, you're putting your finger on a really continually hot button issue in Buddhist studies, I can tell you. The idea, this old idea of two Buddhisms, and then people talked about three Buddhisms, Buddhisms and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing mess. Um, the, you know, I like this terminology. I'm intrigued by your terminology of what do you call inheritors and adopters. Um, there is something very similar to that in, in, in Buddhism. About 70% of Buddhists in America are Asian American. So, you know, and about 95% of the coverage of Buddhism in America is about that last 30%, the white people, mm-hmm. or of the overwhelmingly white. Um, that's a problem. That's a real problem. And it's, it's led to distortions. Um, you know, there's still this idea of, of you know, whatever, uh, uh, traditional Buddhists or ethnic Buddhists, heritage Buddhists, convert Buddhists versus ethnic Buddhists, you know, uh, like Pure Land Buddhism, uh, particularly the Buddhist churches of America, have been in America for over a hundred years. And back in the days, in the 30s and 40s, they really changed their whole liturgy and their sangha organization, so on, to to in, quite intentionally to to make them resemble Protestant Christianity. Um, even some of the hymns that they sing are Buddhist words sung to the melodies of, of some classic old Christian hymns. Um, so it, what is that? Are, is that exotic? Is that Buddhism? Is that what, what is that? That's a hybrid that could never have existed anywhere except this country. And that's cutting edge stuff. They created that 70, 80 years ago. And yet they still get labeled as ethnic Buddhist, whatever that's supposed to mean, as if not everybody in the world was ethnic. We're all ethnic in our different ways. So lots of lots of problems there, and 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 on, uh, in terms of scholars trying to understand it uh, and us getting it wrong, and also of the difficulty of these different kinds of sanghas of interacting and cooperating and so on. I'm sure it's very much like in Hinduism, Phil, in, mm-hmm. in America, They're like yoga studios versus ashrams. <laughs> it's well, I, I mean, you mentioned that uh, about how they adopted the the the, the uh, songs. Uh, if you go to a, an SRF Sunday service, which is Hindu it's from Yogananda, and, and uh, I, I went to a number of them, and it was like going to a uh, Lutheran service, and they sing that it was bizarre. To me, it was bizarre, but I, I'm not saying it was a bad thing. 
<clears throat> but I really didn't, it was, it didn't seem right to me. It seemed strange. And, and maybe that's my problem. Uh, but uh, if people get something good out of it, why not? But I can understand the confusion that must come from it and what a traditional Hindu from India would think if they went to a, a service like that. Luckily, I, I, I imagine this is true in, in, in the Hindu context, but in the Buddhist context in America, at least in, in large cities, you know, if, if, if you want to come and see something traditional that's part of your birth heritage from whatever mm -hmm. sect of Buddhism you practiced back in Asia, you can find it. <laughs> you know, you can find it just 15 right. minutes away. If you want to go to something that's highly psychologized or highly Americanized or, or, or is, is, a, is a woke sangha or something mm -hmm. like that, you can find that too. So uh, the, the, the diversity of it is great. The lack of mutual understanding and, and mostly that comes from the dominant, the, the, the minority practitioners, that is to say the, the smaller amount, the white people mm -hmm. who feel that they should be nevertheless dominant that's a problem. That they have nothing to learn from these old, these old, these, you know, these, these ethnic traditions of, of Buddhism, you know, they have all this cultural baggage and so on, you know, which is to put it another way, 2,500 years of practice and wisdom. Uh, so maybe, you know, you could learn from that. <laughs> yeah, let, let me follow up though. Uh, would, how is it, would you categorize some of this thinking as racist? Oh, I would. Absolutely. You can't, you cannot live in America without being racist. That's my view. Mm -hmm. You can be, uh, you can be an active racist. That is, you think that a white culture and white people are better than other people. You can be a passive racist. I'm just colorblind. I don't want to see anything. Or you can be a kind of self-aware recovering racist right. where you are, you're coming to terms with privilege and and working against it and and but even when you do that you still feel it i mean i was part of this problem in a way like i'm i'm celebrating attention now in buddhist studies to and, and in this conversation to um asian american buddhists but what did i do my dissertation on zen center of la which is like 95 percent white mm -hmm. <laughs> So, you know, and I didn't even consider it back. I and mean, this is 20, 25 years ago, but I, I didn't even consider it. I mean, that Zen was cool. Now, why did I think Zen was cool? Probably because it echoed certain aspects of, uh, of my own cultural identity, which is a, which is a highly educated, uh, you know, liberal white identity. Um, so I acted in a racist way, not in, a, not in an evil way, just in a racist way. We can't help. We swim in it. The water we swim in. Hans, in your defense. Yes. Um, Public defender. I appreciate no, it. I, I mean, it's, it, it was a legitimate uh, inquiry. It, it's a phenomenon. The, the adoption of Buddhism and Hindu practices and yoga and everything by the West, as you know, I, 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 I wrote a, books about it. So it's, it's a legitimate thing to be interested in, especially if you're a scholar like you are doing a study. It's like, you know, what's going on here? Uh, plus, there was a lot of interesting things happening at the Zen Center of LA at that time, as I recall. So, you know, I, you can call it racist, or you could call it uh, a scholar pursuing something of interest, you know, on a scholarly basis. It's a both end, for sure. 
Yeah, and, and when I use the word racist, I'm not using it in that way that that narrow sense that a lot of people use it in. Like racists are people who hate people who are not white. That's, that's a useless way of using the term in my, in my perspective. I just, I, I just have, what I've, what I, to put it more positively, what I've really rejoiced in, 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 in my career as a Buddhist studies um, scholar from say the mid eighties to, to now over that, you know, 35 years, um, what I've, the, the attention has moved from a bunch of old white guys studying texts and arrogating to themselves the authority to interpret those texts as opposed to, you know, the peasants who practice this stuff to a bunch of young scholars looking at Buddhists and their life ways and learning from them. And, and, and that of course also turns attention from the authority of the old white guy, which, you know, I've become looking <laughs> to, um, to the authority of actual people practicing Buddhism. And, and they're the authorities on Buddhism. They're, they know, They've, they spend their lives doing it. So we can, as scholars, we can add to that. We can nuance that. We can connect that up with other practices. We can do comparative work and all that stuff is fantastic. Uh, but I really have loved the, the, the attention turning toward real Buddhists doing real practice. And I'm glad to have been part of that. Franz, um, in, my, in my work with the traditions that come from India, the effects of colonialism are immense. The, uh, the countries that from which uh, Buddhism came here, Japan, Tibet, Burma, Thailand, the, the, the colonization was different and in some cases didn't exist. That's, so that, that aspect of it is one thing I wanted to ask about. The other is um, the fine line between something from one culture being adapted to a new culture, which all the teachers who came here from Asia did, whether they were Buddhist or Hindu or whatever. Um, and uh, what we've now call cultural appropriation in an inappropriate, you know, form of, you know, a, a, a taking something from another culture. How do, how do you make those distinctions? And, and uh, you know, how difficult is it? Oh, it's, it's extremely difficult, I, in, in my personal view. Um, and the way we make the distinctions is still evolving. So, I mean... Take the example of Buddhism and psychology and the, or the psychologization of Buddhism. And that's my particular field. So, you know, Buddhism came into Western awareness uh, roughly at the same time that psychology was, 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 was forming, you know, that, that modern psychological theories were forming, mm -hmm. schools were forming. And so there was this easy mapping of Buddhism onto psychology. Sometimes that it turns out to be a, a, a reduction of Buddhism to a form of psychology. That's cultural appropriation. Now that's one form of cultural appropriation. That's wrong. That's just a gross distortion of the tradition of Buddhism, which is not, well, not a psychology in, in a Western sense. So that's bad. On the other hand, to take Buddhist meditative practices and integrate them into psychotherapy, that might be really good. To do that in a way that effaces Buddhism, that could be really bad. So like, for instance, I have, I have difficulties with the overwhelming 
popularity of the MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, because it really does intentionally efface Buddhism uh, and makes a kind of claim to uh, Buddhist teachings as if they were universal teachings that the Buddhism can be taken away from. That's pretty much the, the literal definition of cultural appropriation. So that I'm not so cool with. On the other hand, psychotherapists that bring, uh, say, choiceless awareness into a psychotherapeutic session, which is a lot like Freud's even, evenly hovering attention, that could be really great. That could make allow for breakthroughs in 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 the in the patient's experience that they might not have had any other way. I think if you label it and respect it and don't try to say it's your own thing and don't reduce it to your own perspective, then you're using it in a way that's fantastic. Uh, so that part doesn't seem to bother me. How do you make the, some fine distinctions in, in, in the, I mean, I've, I've kind of made ideal types there. They're easy to distinguish. That The right. middle ground can be a little murky. I, I, I would, I'm trying to get my head around this, uh, from, you know, it, it, I would love your perspective on this. Say I'm a, I would say somebody is a, uh, a, a personality theorist in psychology, Jung, Freud, anybody, somebody contemporary, uh, Carl Rogers, uh, who's ever doing it at the time. How do they use or uh, how do they bring in Buddhism in a way that is inappropriate? And how do they bring it in a way that is appropriate? But I, I think I, I, I want to understand how they would do it inappropriately. I, 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 my favorite example of this is, okay, uh, is my namesake, Franz Alexander, who was one of the uh, early students of Freud. So he's coming from a really classic Freudian perspective. This is back in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he looked at Buddhist practice, um, meditative practice, particularly the jhanas, which are not the insight practice, but the, the calming, the samadhi practice, right? Calming practice. And he said, this is a regression to the womb <laughs> and it's tied up with Thanatos, the death instinct. And, you know, it's, it's uh, obviously uh, reductive and it's obviously uh, no, regressive and, you know, you should never practice it. That's how to do it wrong. <laughs> okay. but, but, wait, but wait, what if he actually believed that? It's up to me whether I accept that or not. But if that was what he believed it was, uh, or you, 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 moving away from from Buddhism to looking at Christianity and different rituals that I had different things that monastic orders do that some people, a psychologist or whatever, might explain it in, in in Freudian terms or whatever. That to me would be incredibly inappropriate and crazy because I was practicing meditation when I was in a Freudian program, and basically everything I was learning they they were they were twisting around to something to me that was bizarre. But, you know, uh, is it inappropriate for them to do that? I, I, I guess I could, you might, to be charitable to somebody like Franz Alexander or, the, or these teachers that mm -hmm. you had, uh, I guess you could say that in their capacity as psychoanalytic thinkers, it's okay for them to make these interpretations. Mm -hmm. In their capacity as, as experts on Buddhism or anything else for that matter, they're idiots. <laughs> and they're <protecting laughs> I, I, their own how? I agree. I had those same thoughts at the time. So, <laughs> Which brings us to the uh, popularization of uh, mindfulness practices in a secular context, in a mm -hmm. therapeutic context, much as 
transcendental meditation and yoga practices were medicalized and therapized and all that. What is the thinking in your thinking and in the American Buddhist community in general about that? And the uh, on the one hand, these practices being available to a great many people who wouldn't otherwise be exposed to them. On the other hand, the uh, de-Buddhaizing of it all and the, is anything lost? Is anything, you know, uh, do we, do we lose something in the, the secularization? Oh yeah. You lose about 95% of Buddhism. But, but of course, someone like John Kabat-Zinn, who's the originator of, of the mindfulness-based stress reduction, would say that that's a good trade-off. I mean, that was the trade-off that he intended to make. Very, very, in a very self-aware way, being a, a, a doctor, he wanted to be able to bring these practices into the medical establishment, which he could not do if they were considered to be religious. Um, so uh, he took the religion out of the practices. And that has led to literally millions, maybe tens, of, I think probably now tens of millions of Americans being able to live more easily with chronic pain, you know, to reduce their medications, to be happier people. Like, who am I to say that that's a bad thing? I'm not gonna say that's bad. That's good on its face. So what do we lose? So we've gained something, right? But and what we've lost though, what we're in danger of losing though, is, uh, is the, that aspect of the Buddhist tradition that emphasizes meditative traditions within a religious context. Um, maybe that the, 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 the real, the danger that I would worry would happen is, is all that, that kind of practice gets sucked out of institutional Buddhism, reinterpreted, appropriated into the medical establishment. What's left in, in Buddhism then is maybe a path without heart, you know, is, is, is just old institutions and uh, cultural practices that are valuable, particularly, um, you know, in terms of preserving Asian American identity over generations, those are great things. But if Buddhism is reduced to just that, that's a real problem. And that's not just a problem in America. I mean, in Japan, mm -hmm. Buddhism is kind of dying in Japan. Uh, temples mm -hmm. are going bankrupt because they're not centers of spiritual practice. They're centers of cultural respect and veneration for um, you know, previous generations and so on. And, but that's not enough to keep them alive. So. Uh, I think that's a huge loss. Mm -hmm. And uh, so well, I, if that happens in America, I'd, I'd be sad to see that. But what would you say if a, a student or person came to you and said, uh, I have been uh, practicing mindfulness meditation. I really like it and all. But as I practice it and I go deeper within, with it, uh, I, I'm realizing more and more it's something that's been secularized. It's something that's been taken out of Buddhism and, and, uh, and given to me as a technique. And I, I'm feeling a little lost and I'd like to really uh, understand it in the context of, of Buddhism. And, and, and do I go to the original text? Where, where do I go to, to get that fuller uh, experience and understanding? Well, 
what I would do if someone asked me that is I would say, oh, I have some great ideas for you. Uh, let me email you back. And <laughs> then I would quickly go and like I would research, you know, where they are, what centers are near them. And I would I would get a sense of of the different kind of uh, the Pasana mm -hmm. or Theravada centers that are near them, which ones are uh, uh, most likely to be able to be open to welcoming that person in and yet and value their psychological roots, um, but introduce them to the fuller aspect right. of the tradition. And then I would also recommend, you know, uh, online sources. There's so much out there. Buddhism is, I think, certainly the second best represented tradition on the internet, religious tradition on the internet after Christianity. Um, and I, and not just best in the sense of most widely represented, but I think most uh, responsibly and accurately represented. There's, I mean, wow, it, you know, I teach religious studies and, and I, I try to find sometimes sources on, uh, new sources to send my students, you know, to inform them or things for them to read. And when you do that on Islam, oh my gosh, the, 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 the junk that is out there on the internet on Islam is just horrifying. It's horrifying. Mostly written by Christians, sad to say. Mm. Um, uh, so it's, it's dangerous to send them out there to, to right. students. I mean, I don't even want students to research Islam online. Um, but Buddhism, I can let them go and do it and they're gonna find relatively good, good material, which pleases me. <laughs> Franz, um, I'm aware uh, as an outsider that within the uh, Buddhist community in America, the American Buddhist community, especially not the, uh, so much the Asian as far as I know, and in, the, in your field of uh, Buddhist studies in academia, there are, it, they're both not without controversy at the moment, especially around issues like racism, inclusion. Uh, we've had other guests talking about how white the uh, American Buddhist sanghas are and the uh, uh, absence of people of color and so forth. Uh, can you, I know, you know, it's a big complex subject, but if you could uh, give us a sense of, of what the uh, internal debates are and uh, what, where you think it's headed. It's, it is really complex. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I can say a few things. One thing that makes it complex is that the, that the Buddhist institutions that came to America were headed by people of color, you know, by, by, by Asians and then by Asian Americans. And so in, in a sense, there's an anti-racist component to Buddhist practice and Buddhist institutions in America. On the other hand, um, as we were discussing earlier, you know, the publicity, you know, the, the, and the studies and so on have, have, have grossly over-focused on, on sanghas that are overwhelmingly white. Um, so Zen Centre of LA is a good example because Zen Centre of LA has been, except for one year of its now six, almost 60 year history has been led by people of color. But having said that, it's been overwhelmingly white. You know, the practitioners have been 90% plus white. So there's this strange disjunction there. So, and then of course, 
Buddhism is trying to fit into a culture that has been traditionally, historically, uh, highly, in, highly um, controlled by kind of Protestant Christian mentality, Protestant Christian people, Protestant Christian values, and so on, and has tried to fit into it. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's an inherent complexity, but that's all within the context of the, the, the very simple reality of racism in America, which privileges white culture and white people. Um, so even in these cults, in these, in these, um, all these different, and, and, you know, Buddhism in America is a collection of, of hundreds and hundreds of different lineages and, and centers and temples and uh, uh, meditation centers that, that are all, all, most of them are quite independent of each other. But in, in practically all of them, there's been a, uh, of the ones who are trying to attract converts, I should say, uh, in other words, white people, there's been this tendency to try to, to privilege white students and groom white students to take over and, and, uh, and mostly male students as well. So there's, there's a real uh, unfortunate kind of narrowing of the traditions um, along those lines. And in the last, say, 10 years or so, there's been a real uh, and widespread um, pushback against that. And, and it's, it's really, a, it's a really positive development. So you have, uh, you have people who are, you have, you have uh, sanghas that are intentionally um, uh, designed, you know, it's self, self uh, 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 organized around people of color or sanghas that are organized around um, uh, LBGTQ plus people or, um, or, 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 or or who knows what, right? And 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 those sanghas have 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 started to grow their own teachers, and then some of those teachers are trying now to change the dynamics in the in the older, very white male-centered lineages as well. And, the, mm -hmm. and some of those lineages are really open to that. They're like, "Wow, mm -hmm. you guys are doing these other kind of practices." There's a real tendency for 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 white male religious institutions to be very focused on the individual spiritual development of people particularly white males. <laughs> and um, there's a tendency in, um, in, in American sanghas that are led by uh, Asian Americans or are, led by, or are led by people who don't identify as white males to be much more community focused, much more uh, uh, communal, much more sanghas, you know, mm -hmm. to go back to that word, that's community. And to suggest that maybe awakening is a process that's a social process, that's a that's a societal process even. And wouldn't that change what it means to be a Buddhist and what practice means? Practice is not just sitting on your cushion because you have the time to do that for several hours a day and go on retreats. You know, it's expensive to go on retreats, not just not just for the money that you spend at the retreat, but all the lost earnings. You know, if, if you say you can only be a teacher in our tradition, if you've, if you've done a total of six months of, of, of meditation retreats, well, then you got to have money. And you got to have money in America, it means you're probably white. <laughs> so it's, it's great to say, hey, no, you don't have to have that. You have to have been with the community for six months. You have to, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that, that changes the whole dynamic of who's the teacher, what people look up to, what practice really is. Maybe practice is, is being out on the streets and, and marching. In, in last, last uh, June, we had a, 
uh, Buddhists against, you know, racism march, um, you know, during the time of the George Floyd protests here in LA. And it was really cool. There were like hundreds of Buddhists mm -hmm. out there marching. To, to me, that was, a, and it, we, it was intentionally a meditative march. So rather than, uh, you know, say his name, George Floyd, which, you know, I did at other marches, we were like, <laughs> you know, we, we were in like Kinhin walking down the street in silence, carrying our signs. It was beautiful. So we can imagine uh, that if we did some uh, preparation, we could get somebody on who would argue against your position. <laughs> yeah. oh, that would be, yeah, that'd be easy. I could give you some names. That's always the case with anything. I just wanted to, I just wanted to establish that there's, you know, there's, it's an ongoing debate. Franz, we don't have, we don't have much more time. Dennis, did you have a, another question? No, I, I, Franz, if you'd like to uh, finish uh, uh, with a message to our Wait, I want to, I want to do one. Franz, we, we have to, we have to do some book oh, promotion yeah. for you. I remember that book. This is, what uh, what would do? What, what would do? Uh, the other, being Buddha at Work is the latest book. We'll have all of that posted up. But uh, and, and any other information you I, I wanted to ask Franz one quick question because I always love the fact that the last of the 101 questions in the book Franz put in is what would Buddha do to discover what would Buddha do? So my question is what would Buddha do if he saw a book called What Would Buddha Do? <laughs> Give us a quick answer, Franz. <laughs> <laughs> well, he he would he'd sign it for you. <laughs> That's good. I'm sorry, we're on Zoom. I can't do that. Um, you know, when I look at that book, that I mean, I wrote that book over 20 years ago. Wow. It, it's 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 so old now that when I read parts of it, it's like reading advice from someone else who's so much wiser than I am. It's really uh -huh. it's really a kind of lovely feeling. You, know, that, you were so much older then. Yeah, yeah, younger than <laughs> for sure. So I look forward to you telling me when you've uh, found and done an uh, interview with that person who's going to totally trash all the things I said. Okay. I really have got to watch that episode right away. We'll do it. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Fran. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. And, and to our listeners, uh, before you uh, uh, move on, uh, Make sure to uh, subscribe if you're listening on a podcast to the podcast. If you're listening on to the uh, YouTube channel, to uh, to uh, click there to subscribe. And we have about 300 shows in our archives now that are available to everyone uh, free of charge, and we want to keep it that way. So, thanks so much, Franz. Thank you. Thank Next you. time. <laughs>